Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. You know what I saw on the tube this morning? Crowded tube, big little line, King's Cross, getting off. Somebody's getting on with a double bass. Good. (laughs) Was it Danny Thompson? No, I mean, it's just a young... Is it Bedders Bedford of of Madness? I would say... Taking a double bass on a rush hour Piccadilly line train has seen it. Were they heading to Heathrow? Like taking a double buggy. <laughs> it's, it's worse than a double buggy. And the double buggy is bad enough. noise. <laughs> Extraordinary thing to see. I suppose you've got no option, really, if you're a young double bass player. You, and you can't afford cabs. You can't trundle it through the street. And, you? you know, if you get on an airplane with a double bass now, insurers won't put them in the freight holds. You have to pay for a seat for your double bass. You have to probably have to pay for a first-class seat, you yeah. know, a double bass. The double bass can recline. It's very expensive being a travelling musician. Yeah. Does the, does the LSO meet at 9.30 in the morning? That's what seems unlikely. Well, they probably do, actually. Or did he just get home late from a rehearsal with, with, yeah, a, a, young with, with, a, with a flautist? Yeah, probably, probably, yeah. never quite make it home. <laughs> Walk a shame. Yes, yes. You, you. <laughs> It's, it's, it's going to be a dating amongst oh, musicians. I woke been. up in the morning and a, a strange violin case was on my, on my floor. In my hallway. <laughs> Rumble. So anyway, and uh, I want to start by saying I, I, I requested on, on Twitter this morning that people come up with uh, words to describe Tom Jones's strange skin pigmentation as seen on... Uh, page 40 of the current issue of Word, where he's lined up. For those who haven't seen it, you, you must see this. It's absolutely astonishing. He's lined up with the, the various other people to take uh, in the cast of Later, with Jules Holland at the front, and there's Florence of the Machine, and Imelda May, and Dizzy Rascal, yeah. And Tom is a colour that, well, I think somebody, I think Alci Valparaiso <laughs> described it as Chernobyla. That's, yeah. that's good. I was going to say, yes, it's got but a thermonuclear people, dimension to it. Other people have come in. Sotero has described it as tandoori ochre. I could see that. Which, good. Is, very which good. is very good. Um, and um, Drakey Girl describes it as sunbed catastrophe. <laughs> Asleep yeah. on a sunbed. <laughs> uh, Mr. Reno Dakota calls it Welsh gold. 
Uh, Andy Afford calls it Autumn Maple. Oh, that's nice. Good work. Other people just lost for words, uh, call it, calling it unholy and a bloody disaster. But it, I've never seen a human being that colour. Well, when people I, talk about people having orange suntans, it's usually not this orange. This is it's, it's absolutely under originally orange, which is which is acceptable. Really, it's like a sort of Sainsbury's carrier bag. This, this is bronze. Incredible. Incredible. I didn't actually know. We were just passing the proof, and it was Kate Mossman who pointed out. I said, "Why don't you say something about Tom Jones?" I said, "What about?" I said, "Well, look at him." <laughs> and of course, when you when you look at this, your first feeling is that is that there must have been something gone has gone wrong in the process, and that everybody's orange. But of course, they're not. They're not. They're not. I mean, Paloma Faith is a very very popular. Jules himself is a sort of way faced individual, isn't he? It's a perfect Studio color. Com- it's perfect color comparison. Co- chart, isn't mm. it, this picture? Because you've got people, obviously, you know, you've got black people, uh, and you've got pallid, gothy-looking people. Absolutely. You've got regular-looking white people. And they're all the right colour. <laughs> and then you've got this bizarre <laughs> person who looks like he's been illustrated by The Simpsons. He looks like know. he's been tangoed. <laughs> Actually, you do get the, the four colours, don't you, to check colour proofs, you know, as anybody who's <laughs> in this business will know. Yes. Cyan, you know. <laughs> Maybe you should just have a little picture and, of Tom, and Tom Jones. Jones. And Tom Jones. <laughs> Further, Roger Wormtidy describes it as apricot glow. Uh, and uh, Kevin McCready says, to use a Scouse impression, it's like a farmer's arse. That's very good. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, keep them coming. For farmer's arse, farmer's arse that's just ploughed a very bumpy field. Yeah, this is a word podcast, in case you didn't know. Mark Ellen, hello. Hello, yes, how exciting. And Fraser Lurie, hello. hello. Uh, and uh, what have we got to talk about? I think we can't go any further without recapping on last week's triumphant gig, the second in the series of Word in Your Ear concerts. Uh, concerts, can we call them concerts? Yeah, I guess. Events. Events, yes. Uh, Evenings. T- took place in the Lexington Suarez. across the road, uh, featuring the mighty Wootars, um, Lula in the Lampshades, uh, otherwise known as Lula in the Lampshades. Oh, sorry. Oh, compound my misery. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. And, uh, and Neil Hannon, the Divine Comedy. And uh, Splendid Time was had by all, wasn't it, Mark? It, oh, absolutely, it was fantastic. Actually, yes, it's our second one, and uh, I, t- I tell you what I thought about it on the way home was I thought that there was something <coughs> very specific about choosing um, artists who can play. This. How big is that video? Two hundred and fifty? Two hundred, I think. Two hundred, right? Two hundred, two hundred people. But when Neil Hand came on, there was absolute pin drop silence. Absolute silence. Everybody wanted to hear. Every syllable of what he had to say, apart from one guy at the back who actually had a quiet, quiet word with something I haven't done for a long time. And Talk who, about that. And who moment. left soon afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and there don't were no, mess no, with no blows uh, exchanged. But, you know, I, I thought that was quite interesting because I don't know how much bigger you can make those events before you inevitably get an element at the back who are kind of only half interested. And we've talked about this on, on many uh, podcasts. I think it's possible it. on the kind of South Bank uh, venues where everyone's seated, you know, it's a lot more genteel. Well, there's no bar there. And there's no bar and and in the no, room. That's yeah. true. Yeah, that, that is true. Because the pub obviously wants the bar to be used, yes. doesn't it? Understandably. And people want drinks and getting drinks. You know, they're, they're, you can't do it silently, can you? You know, it's going to, it's going to produce that kind of noise. Um, I, I was intrigued by the fact that, that be, being in my... Um, be, because I was at the Wheels of Steel... Ones and twos, ones and twos. Uh, I was I was parked away in a kind of DJ booth, which is up on the stage, sort of off the stage, up up to the up to the left as you're looking at the stage. And I had a unique point of view because during Neil Hannon's set, which is marvelous, marvelous. For those who weren't there, he was he had a grand piano. We somehow got a grand piano upstairs at the Lexington. 
Which I think ought to get a piano remover special award, it's isn't it? It's a Bernard Cribbins vocal. It's, <laughs> it's extraordinary. How the hell they got that thing up there, yeah. I don't know, but they did. And I was... Uh, so I was right behind him as he played. And that was the nearest I will ever get in my life to the artist's point of view on stage. Is it pretty nearly like sitting on the piano stool next to him, you know? So could you, you hear what people said? If anybody said something to him in the front row, you could, I presume. You can hear it, because you've got a perfect view of the, you know, the back of Neil's head. Yeah. But you're looking over him, so you can see, you know, the, his set list on the piano, you know, on the music stand and, and so forth. And then you could, you know, in the same view, you saw the crowd. And, of course, you've got the more rapt individuals at the front and you've got the, you know, the slightly semi-detached, slightly further back. And, and Mark Allen throwing a bloke out right <laughs> in the distance on and, the exit side. And uh, <laughs> he, it, was, it was a marvellous show. You know, as you say, you, you could have heard a pin drop. But, boy, when somebody talks, boy, you're aware of it. You know, it only takes one and they don't even have to talk loudly. You're really aware. You can sort of hear the sibilance of speech. Yeah, it, it, you know, it coming it from the back the of the balloon. Pl- it's extraordinary. And um, I was thinking about this last night because I was reading. It was a very good feature in the New New Yorker about Elvis Costello. I don't know if you read it. And and it, at the final bit, he goes. Elvis does a corporate gig somewhere, which he obviously does to pay the bills. Uh, and it's just him on his own, you know, thrown in there with some people from a company or some organisation or whatever, some of whom are big Elvis fans and other people have sort of heard of him and some people are more interested in, in drinking. And the writer talks about he had Elvis had to fight a wave of intention that was coming from the mixing desk. And you, and you can... Having sat where I sat when Neil Hannon was there, and there was no inattention apart from that one bloke, absolutely, you can imagine what it feels like to be the artist. It's almost like a visible, physical thing coming towards you. How did he do it? Well, he's just really aggressive and really pushing, and you know. But but what he said afterwards, which I suppose is what all artists have to say, is you're playing to the ones who are listening. You know, because it's very rarely that you get a load of people where absolutely everybody's listening, regardless of their um, regardless of their engagement with the artist. You know, you don't have that kind of you don't have the discipline of the theatre. I I, I, don't, I think I think all musicians actually have uh, well ones with any experience have built up an arsenal of tricks they use. And Neil Hannon played one the other night, uh, which was to I, I don't think he'd mind me saying that, but I think he affected actually. To forget the words to one of his songs. You think I, I do? Yeah, I do. Oh, well, I and he kept that gag going. I mean, because the level. I, I, I don't. I'm, anyway, I don't mean to, to take away from this because the levels of artifice used on, as part of stagecraft are incredible. To the extent that, as you, as you probably remember, Paul McCartney did his MTV Unplugged and had actually programmed the band to rehearse a breakdown of a song. So they they played eight sixteen bars or whatever, and then it breaks down, and McCartney scratches his head and goes, "Oh, I got that one wrong. Let's start again, lads." You know. But that's actually in the script that they do that. So um, you have to bear in mind that people do use quite obvious advice. Right. I thought, that, well, if he did it once, he certainly extended the gag, which is, I can't remember the lyrics to my own song, which was absolutely. An extraordinary moment in the concert because at that point people started to sing the lyrics for him. Yes, people were people at the very back of this, admittedly not very big hall, were drawn into it. And then he plays, um, uh, was it National Express? What's the song he played yes. at the end, which he, which he <clears> claimed <throat> to be his best known song, and couldn't remember the words to that either. Well, and that was an did. absolutely wonderful moment. Of course, they did for him, and there's something very, very. Um, 
you know, intimate and engaging about the idea that maybe the wheels have come off. They haven't come off. They're suddenly starting to wobble, you know. So I thought he might have affected that. I don't care if he did. I thought it was a fantastic yeah, yeah, piece yeah. of theatre, you know. But of course, also what he did is he encouraged that singing along, didn't he? Because he did, uh, as his uncle, Don't You Want Me, the human Genius. <laughs> That was genius. That was right. Smack in the middle of the demographic, that was. Everybody, everybody in that, in everybody that room knew. learned the lyrics out of Smash It. Everybody knew the lyrics. Record. And it has that great, rich baritone that everyone can sing. You I know, suppose so. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a very easy pitch. Everyone can sing that. That was a brilliant idea. Anyway, it's a great evening, and it won't be the last. Um, you know. And we discovered something else, which is Chutney. That's oh, yes. Made by uh, digital editor uh, and, um, and gastronomic expert. Fraser Lewis gastronaut. Is, gastronaut is immensely attractive. We had a little raffle. We had a little raffle. Which is, a, I can't just say, that was a very funny moment. I, I was, was going to do this moment. raffle, and uh, various people, Kate, I think, was going to, but Kate was going around the corner to see Daryl Scott playing. And I was going, I thought, oh, it's Dave, you're up in your booth. I'll get Dave to come pick the lucky winners from my, from 17 Johnson's top hat. Leon with, Russell with, with top the hat. Leon Russell top And then I remembered that Mark Radcliffe was playing the uh, as, in his uh, support band, supporting uh, Wilco Johnson, just across the road at the, the uh, Academy. In, 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 uh, in his internet, I'd sent him a text earlier in the day. So I don't know what time we're off stage, but I'd love to come. It'd be really good. And I kind of just—I was on my way up to the stage, and I'd sent him another text and said, "Any chance you can make it?" And I got a text from him saying, "You know, you know, on the stairs." And that was a fantastic moment, actually, because I announced our top pop celebrity from the world of wireless. You know, and I could see him waving in the audience and making his way through. <laughs> I don't think he mind us saying he'd had a drink. He'd taken yeah. a drink. <laughs> he had a drink. drink had been he extremely. I don't funny. know what time his group. Came Came off stage, but I think he, I think this he hadn't uh, wasted the precious a, minutes. They said week. about the rider in you know yeah. in fairly you know energetic fashion. Well, it? I've seen Mark play in various groups. Actually, he takes the precaution, sensible precaution, of getting a lot of that drink, drinking early before he's even gone on stage. Oh my! God. And drinks heavily throughout the performance. Oh really? Oh yeah, yeah. Which is an excellent maneuver. Yeah, yeah. He can handle it. He's no, so, the, so I think we might have a celebrity guest and a raffle at the raffle. You know, people very kindly Charlie. posted on the word website wordmagazine.co.uk their comments on you know various aspects. <laughs> Performers like people always have to say they always have to say one criticism. They just have to. It's a, it's a compulsion. Yep. And somebody said, "Not sure about the raffle." And I thought, "Oh my god, <laughs> you got a free raffle! You know, you're given a ticket when you it's come in. Chutney. You might win some chutney or a silver disc. How can that What's be bad? wrong with that? <laughs> you know, on any level? You know, oh, the no. country's mired in recession. You get a bear there's, hug. There's deprivation you. everywhere. Yeah. Don't." Bitch about a free raffle. Anyway, it was fun and there'll be more. The Word. A magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. So new issue of Word out this week. Bruce Springsteen on the cover. We've all picked something we liked. We've all picked something to discuss. Do you want to go first, Fraser? Well, I was going to mention Tom Jones and his head. Oh, I'm sorry. Gun <laughs> <laughs> but I stole it. We're going to tear up your script. <laughs> so, I was going to... Uh, the other thing I really like is the uh, Mary Cochran interview, because I don't know much about her, but what a terrifying woman. Do you not think? <laughs> it, what, 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 which particular aspect makes her terrifying? All of her. There's something... It just that she terrifies me. Tell, tell the, 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 the viewers who... Um, who she is. Well, I don't really know much about her. It's, it's like a name that I've heard bandied around, but I'm not, I don't know her music at all. Well, she's an Irish singer from, I mean, her big success was in about 80s, I was probably at Q Magazine, 86, 87, was it? Or maybe later? I don't know. Well, she's had odd successes. Yeah, and, and she's always made really good records. She's made some great records. And it's, it, it, she's a very, it's an old fashioned Irish singer who therefore. Female um, Tom Waits. Female Tom Waits, very good, very good. Very gravelly, very. Um, 
colourful. Uh, very colourful and very kind of, um, you know, unapologetic. Sings about she the low life. To have, um, a, 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 life she was, uh, a life she seems to have a lot of first-hand experience of, actually. She's had a, a, a catalogue of catastrophic uh, marriages. Um, she's had a tangle with booze. She became. She also suffered from something that a lot of musicians suffer from. Um, I think it had a terrible effect on her, which is a brief moment in the spotlight. Where she suddenly becomes a bit fashionable. There's a brilliant bit of that. I remember she says that one day, was it, was it uh, Bono, uh, David Bowie? Who is it? He comes backstage in the pool quote. Have a quick look. And she says, They came backstage, but I was so drunk I didn't notice them. Uh, Van Morrison, Nick Cave, and Morrissey. Van Morrison, Nick Cave, and Morrissey came back to see me. So that, at that time, these were huge, huge stars and still are, you know. So she didn't really appreciate what happened to her um, and was very affected by the fact that a photographer, one moment in her life, Explain that moment about the photographer. She, well, she has a, a photograph taken, doesn't she, lying in the street? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it, it, it kind of it, it sums her character up from, the, from that point onwards. But I think the photographer you says see, to her, you're, you're, a, you're a drunk, is what he's trying he to says, say. You're a characterful old drunk, you know, short of actually having a, a can of special brew in her hand. He <laughs> says, I tell you what you do, lie down on the street with your head on the pavement, I think, wasn't it? And that was almost implying that she was just in the gutter looking at the stars. I think that was the, the gist of it, you know. But that picture became the completely overriding That's the brand identity. Yeah. Uh, the brand identity of what she was, you know, our perception of her ever since. Didn't the manager at some point, is mentioned in the piece, uh, uh, that she's supposed to be meeting a journalist first thing in the morning, Columbia Hotel, I think, in uh, in Bayswater, and he tells her to, to make an entrance down the stairs That's holding right, yeah. an empty bottle of, what is it, champagne or Jack Daniels yeah. or yeah. whatever. This is... It's ultimately not a good idea no. to do this kind of thing. No. You know, you mustn't be surprised if you get a bad reputation no. when you when you volunteer to have your picture taken like that. Anyway, she's got her autobiography out now, hasn't she? Yes, she is. Yeah. What's it called? Uh, Bloody Mary, my story, published by Hatchet. And uh, you know, terrific, terrific records. Um, a really interesting interview. I mean, yeah, someone I didn't know anything she's about. Great. She's great. Absolutely Mark, really what about sick. you? Anything? Well, I, I. I thought that the... I like Will McDonald's uh, piece um, about uh, the TFI Friday's experience. That was very much about Britpop. But I thought... This is Will as in Wee! 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 Uh, he still claims... He claims that... Was it Will Carling? And actually, actually a member of the royal family get the same taunt yes, to this yes, day. Which absolutely. Is, you know, like, because he still does, too. Yeah. But I thought, actually, of all of the... I, just, I thought it was a terrific issue, actually. But I, I, I reread it on the train just coming in this morning with uh, Paul Denoyer's piece about Brian Epstein. And I can honestly say, I'm not sure if we've ever published anything... Um, as uh, memorable and so beautifully chiselled. Apart from, I hate saying this in front of you, a piece you once wrote about the blues in oh. the seventh issue, oh. and a wonderful article by Andrew Harrison about the iPod in issue three. But uh, moving on, there, there have been uh, millions and millions and millions of... of well, men aren't very good at giving each other compliments. They only say nice things behind each other's backs. you know. But this is just the most terrific piece. And I, I thought so... I, there was so much that you can take from it. Point one, I think, was um, that it reminds you that... that any musical success story, or indeed any artistic success story, relies on a combination of individuals on the inside and just two or three on the outside. Of course, there the, the were, this is absolutely inescapable, seven members of the Beatles. The four, the oh, incredible. Oh, oh, yeah. oh the, this is good. There's the incredible internal dynamic of the four musicians and songwriters. Okay. There's their producer who interprets their, whatever the song sounds are that they have in their head and, and manages to help them map it out. There is their um, the press officer, Derek Taylor, who I only ever met once, tragically. Fantastic man, who is the buffer and the kind of conduit between them and the outside world. 
very, very crucial individual. And then lastly, of course, there's their manager, who is their strategy. He's not their mate. It's very clear from this. There's no friendship, really. They're fond of him. They have mutual respect. But he's not their mate. That's Brian Epstein. And that magical ingredient is so extraordinary. He is, his experience is so different from theirs. You know, he starts out in a furniture shop. I well, think he works. He wants failure. to be a dressmaker. He's a failure, he's actually. He's a failure. Yeah, he's been in the army. There's a I brilliant book. I, I can't believe nobody's made a film. When I read Paul's um, piece, which I thought was terrific... I can't believe nobody's made a little film about Brian Epstein before the Beatles. Because that's a really interesting story. It is. You know, gay, you know, comes from a Jewish family who obviously thought he was going to be a huge success and he wasn't. Terrible disappointment. Disappointment. Uh, tries his hand at various things. Goes eventually into national service, which is also a very interesting point that Paul makes that Lennon himself is only a whisker away, away from, from national, national service. service. Oh, yeah. John Peel. And Bill Wyman were both in national service. Yeah. They were the youngest. They were the last year, the last, the last, the last form, uh, the last division. But um, he goes. There's a great, it's an amazing bit. He's talking about how how Epstein, obviously public school boy from a fairly posh background, but he's very keen on this on this very old fashioned fifty cents of of dressing up. Yes. You know, he has to be seen to... to there's a marvellous bit in 1967 where Hunter Davis uh, sees him walking down the King's Road. Says, Things are starting to unravel. He said he's, been, he's seen Brian Epstein without a tie. Yes, absolutely <laughs> brilliant. I mean, 1967, King's Road, presumably absolutely everybody else is going completely mental on a kind of huge cocktail of booze and drugs and on a, um, on a great big cushion of sex. I'm not and, sure and everybody. <laughs> quite a few. Let's say they were. But anyway, Epstein in the middle of all this... I wasn't, I must be honest. But anyway, uh, Epstein is in the middle of all this uh, you know it's, it's only just started to loosen his time wear a pair of bell-bottom trousers but the bit when he's in the army is fantastic because he is eventually arrested for insolence really for impersonating an officer what he's actually doing he's not impersonating an officer he's just dressed up to go to dinner and then what he thinks is the proper clothes you know he's, I think he's described Paul describes him as a 50s man in a 60s uh, in a 60s context which is a really interesting way of, way of looking at it and it's just extraordinary how Somebody can have so many failures to their name, and then just one turning one day turns him into somebody who everybody regards as the person who invented rock yeah. management. You know, I think that's probably twenty twenty hindsight. It is, and Paul Paul sort of remembers that that turning point so brilliantly. It's a wonderful. And the other thing about just the way Paul writes, particularly in this case, is of course he knows he's from Liverpool. Paul brings into this the fact that, as a small boy, he used to walk past the record shop. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, he used to ride on those buses. He, he, he completely lived in the whole world while this was going on. But he says, um, it's just a brilliantly uh, moving uh, quote from McCartney, which McCartney says off-camera, where Paul is filming an interview with him a few years ago. And it just shows you how significant that moment was and how fond McCartney and, uh, and grateful he is of the, of the whole incident. He says, um, I was filming an interview with Paul McCartney a while ago. After a few takes, he turned to me. And in a picturesque phrase, he said, we'll get it right now. We'll move majestically to the end, like the steam train bringing Mr Epstein into Lime Street Station to tell us we had a record deal. And that is absolutely immaculate, yeah, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. And that moment when Epstein arrives, he takes the boys out. Does he buy them, I think, it's a Coca-Cola and some biscuits, I think? And he says, I've got you a record deal. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As if he's come back from the, the top of Mount Everest and planted a flag or yeah. something. It's no, absolutely it's a terrific piece. Terrific piece. So I've, 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 the thing that's been haunting me is just a tiny little detail from a piece that Mark Hawkinson wrote about David Gedge of The Wedding Present. And Mark has written stuff in Word before. Um, knew him 25 years ago, 
you know, when he when Mark was on on the local paper in Rochdale, and David Gage was the kind of coming local indie star to be, and so Mark understandably hitched his, you know hitched himself to his coattails, and you know wrote a load of pieces about him, and then wrote a book about them. Uh, which gave him an excuse to leave, leave, leave his job as a newspaper man. And the idea of the piece was, let's go back 25 years later and see, see what's happened, you know. Um, and it's, it's extraordinary in all sorts of ways. But the thing that haunted me is that Mark, Mark makes a point in this, that all writers think this, but very few writers ever say this. He says, in all our conversation which was obviously full of, well, how are you doing in 25 years yeah, and a lot yeah. of water going on the bridge and whatever. He never once asked about me and my family, my children, my partner, anything at all. You know, and Dave Gedge is not Morrissey or Paul McCartney or whatever, but, you know, in that, in that context, he's a, you know, he's a star. And it, is, it, it, it does occasionally occur to me, I don't know if it does to you, you know, you have rock stars that you kind of... You have quite good relationships with them. You sort of bumped into them over the years, you know, regularly. I mean, never confuse it for friendship. But, yeah. but you know, you, you have some people you have a better relationship with others. And they never, ever ask anything about you. But uh, I, I'm kind of used to that because I think that... <laughs> I, 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 I can take your point, but I think to be... I read that David Gedge thing, and my impression was you have to be so unbelievably single-minded to even be David Gage. And I'm not saying this guy hasn't achieved quite a lot. He has. He's got a house in Los Angeles. He's, he's had a pretty successful career. But, you know, that's, David, that's not David Bowie. This is David Gage. And, and he's had to absolutely dedicate his entire life to the... Actually, it comes across that piece of the voting to the exclusion of all else, actually. You know, there he is. And this single-minded pursuit of success and of keeping the wedding present concept alive, you know. And in order to do that, I think you have to ride roughshod over, I mean, you know, I mean, you, maybe you don't have to, but people do. It's like going to a, a, a concert with a musician, which I've got some musician friends, and I find it, I, I find it very difficult actually because they are a musician. It's like it's like you and I looking at magazines. You know, it, I get some miserable experience sometimes. It's pretty competitive. You know, same musicians. They look at other musicians and they just think either that's a brilliant and original sensational, unique ideas I wish I'd had myself. Or that is a monstrous heap of old cliché that I've heard a billion times. You're wasting everybody's time. There's nothing in between, is there? There's nothing between. No, that's the terrible thing. It's so good. so interesting you say that about it. It's like magazines. And it is absolutely like magazines. You know, I've worked in magazines for 30 years or whatever, so have you. And people who've done it are just incapable of saying anything temperate at all about anything else in magazines. It's either absolutely brilliant, but that's all right, they've got the budget... Or it's unreadable garbage. Why yeah. does anybody possibly, you know, uh, read that? And you have to just overdo the colour one way or the other. It's the only way to deal with it. Yeah, i tell you another example of that. So it's a slight tangible. I, th- I think that, that most musicians that I know only really feel happy with music... I don't know if this is too much of generosity. Music of their teenage. Because music of their teenage wasn't something that they were had a competitive relationship no. with. They, they, they were just... They had a very pure, very, very, very uncomplicated relationship they're with They were still it. fans. And they're still fans. Precisely, they're still fans. But once they get to the point where it's music that's contemporary, for example, then they're... Again, their view is going to be coloured by they were on the same circuit with that person. Yeah, they should have yeah. been on the same bill or whatever. But they can't take that piece away recreationally and use it like you, you and I 
I do as, as a little soundtrack to a little moment in their do, lives. Do you think it's also ties in? I've, I've often had a theory that it's impossible ever to hero worship anybody who's significantly younger than you are. You know, so if that's a hierarchy in, probably left over from school. I well, it could yeah. be. You know, if you're going to be introduced to a famous cricketer or whatever, you'd rather it be, I don't know, you know, Ted Dexter than Andrew Flintoff because you have a hero relationship with somebody who was already well known when you were a child. Whereas somebody, anybody, anybody who's come along since, you've seen how they've come along. You've kind of seen the strings being pulled. You've seen the machinery of the, of the career clicking into gear. Whereas the people who were there when you arrived, you know, were, were kind of handed down from the gods, I suppose. Yeah, it's so a lot, lot more innocent, that kind of fandom, isn't it? Yeah, it is. There's a bit in Will McDonald's uh, piece, I can't find it now, actually, which, uh, which uh, again, I was re- rereading on, on the train this morning, and he, he talks about how exciting it was that uh, TFI Friday was, uh, had such pulling power. This is a massive, massive reach, and they could get anybody they wanted to, whoever the contemporary groups were at the time. I suppose it would be you know, Oasis and Blur and people like that. But he said it obviously paled in significance uh, uh, for him to the groups that, that were on the, you know, the, that he used to cut out from the NME, yeah, pictures yeah. of them stick on his bedroom wall. Um, and you, 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 know, and you the, can never get that back. No, and those so you can be respectful of yeah. people who come along, but you can't work. So he them. can't he can't un, un, unburden himself of this relationship at all. I mean, a lot of these groups are far more significant than the ones that he liked when he was yeah, a teenager. Yeah. But for him, that was the most important thing in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The word, a magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. So Fraser, you went to the films last night. You went to the pictures. I did. I went to a, a public screening of the Rush documentary. It was, it was good. Geddy Lee was in attendance. He answered questions afterwards. Oh, this is the new fashion, isn't but it? But it? It, was, it was really good fun. And it was, it was funny because it, it, it felt a bit like a gig. You had an audience full of men wearing Rush T-shirts, which you don't get at the cinema normally, do you? Uh, there's men wearing Rush T-shirts in their mid-40s. A lot of that going on, okay, yeah. Right. And, uh, and obviously very supportive of everything that went on in the film. There's one bit where... So it's so, a retrospective film. Yeah, it? it's, it's a biography. And at one point uh, it's mentioned that it's a, what a travesty it is that Rush hadn't made it to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> and there's kind of a ripple of applause from the audience. <laughs> you know? It was a really, really nice way to see a movie. It was yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. So they, have they got, they got old footage, have they? And Lots of old footage, yeah. Some really extraordinary footage of them playing uh, a college dance in the very, very early 70s before they signed a record deal. Uh, amazing footage, yeah. Another footage of um, the guitarist sitting around in his basement, a little bit drunk, with his parents telling him he should go to college oh, and not waste a teenager and not waste his time with this musicianship malarkey. Oh yeah. God! How would that have been filmed? I don't know. It's, it's so Mum is filming that while Dad gives him a no. I think they're suddenly surrounded by friends, and it's so uh, one of the friends is filming this conversation taking place. You see, because this is obviously. I wanted to just talk about rock documentaries because these are obviously going to change massively in the future because the bands being formed nowadays... Everything is filmed. Everything's filmed. See, I, I think the rock documentary of the future won't be necessarily about... The, the big films won't necessarily be about big bands. They'll be about the bands who had interesting footage shot when they were young. Yes. They don't need to be successful. Or have got an interesting story, I suppose, yeah. like Anvil or something yeah, absolutely, like that, yeah. you know, which was on TV, wasn't it, only a week ago, I think. Because I went to see the Bruce Springsteen film, um, The Promise, which is um, based about, is about the making of Darkness on the Edge of Town in 1977-1978. And I was just amazed that they've obviously they managed to make this film because they have footage shot by a mate you know, who wanted to be a film director, cameraman or whatever, um, in the studio as they were struggling with making that record. 
And so if you'd asked me five years ago, was there any film of Bruce Springsteen making darts on the edge of town, I would probably have said no, you know. But not only is there footage, it's very coherent, very, very good footage. And it's footage of the kind you will never see again. Because you've got things like... Um, Bruce Springsteen playing Sherry Darling. Oh, it's absolutely incredible. At the piano, while Steve Van Zandt plays... Who you also see in the film, (laughs) believe it or not, without a head... uh, A head... um, A headdress. Or a a cap or anything. So you do get to see the last days of Steve Van Zandt. Does he have a luxuriant thatch? Oddly enough, no. No, no, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so as he's tapping on the piano with with drumsticks, and Bruce Springsteen delivers this complete performance of this song. I mean, clearly nobody else has heard it at that point, because when Springsteen's singing lines, you know, Van Zandt is laughing at them, isn't it? And he says at the end, the one and only performance of this phenomenal song ever captured on tape. And, and, he, uh, was, and he obviously thought he was going to throw it away. He's going to throw it away. And it turned up years later, well, a few years later, on, on the river. I mean, it didn't go on Darkness on the Edge of Town. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's a, a, a beef of mine that... You don't get to see, really, you know, one of the reasons contemporary pop performers have got very little mystique is you don't get to see them at work, really. You don't get to see them in the studio. There's a really telling bit of that. (laughs) Well, a lot of telling bit, but one where Springsteen talks about um, the construction of the songs from this pool of available... So, in fact, I think it's Steve Van Zandt at the beginning of the film said, well, the the record before, what we did was we found the the best eight to ten songs, we put them up, and then we put them out as a record. Well, this one, we said we had 70 songs, 70 songs to choose from. And Bruce Springsteen has this notebook, and there's lovely bits of footage close up of the notebook. He's still got the notebook. With all the little details, and he's just writing all the time. It's incredibly exciting, actually. How old would he have been then? Mid to 20? Well, he would have been 26, 27. Right. And it's just this phenomenal creative energy. He's just Every day, he's just waking up with these ideas, and he's writing them down. And he says, the way I looked at the songs was that I would think, well, that isn't working. So I'll take a piece of it. It was just like car equipment, yeah. it was a mechanical analogy. Brilliant, perfect, of course, for the songs that he wrote. He said, I would lift a piece out of one song, stick it in the middle of another song, and see if we can get this thing back on the road. It's a brilliant idea. So he's yeah. just bolting together middle eights, bridges, and verses, and choruses, and finishing up with Sherry Darling. Actually, Sherry Darling looks like he, but no, he made it have up. You seen, have you seen the bit where there... <laughs> one of my memories of, of going to studios in, in years gone by, long before drum machines and so forth, was uh, the amount of time it took to get a drum sound. You know, the, the drummer would very often be on their own in the studio for about a week getting a drum sound, depending on what the budget was. And, um, and Springsteen was obsessed with the sound of Max Weinberg's snare, and he didn't want it to sound as if it was being hit by a stick. I don't know what he wanted it to sound <laughs> as if it was being hit by, but he didn't <laughs> want it to sound as if it was being hit by a stick. And so the major, one of the main memories of everybody on those sessions was Weinberg in the studio, on the studio floor, while Springsteen and Landau and, and uh, Jimmy Iovine or whatever sat in the control room, and Weinberg just bashed his snare time over and time and again, again, while Springsteen just went, stick! Bash, bash, bash. Stick! And they just did it for days, until he got it, somehow to tune the snare, or place the mics, or whatever it is that they do to get it the way he wanted it. But then also, they worked worked so hard on this record, almost insanely hard, because he was determined it was going to be right. And then they found, they got everything to their satisfaction, and then they started mixing it, and they couldn't make it work. They they sort of overloaded it. You know, Springsteen said, 
you know, it's only then I started to learn that you can't put everything on a record. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, you can't pile stuff on, on. That actually, what you take off is every bit as you know profoundly you know the affects the music. Yeah. It's the gaps or whatever. And in those days, I wanted to put everything on, and they. There they were mixing this record that they, they laboured over and they were very pleased with what they'd done, pleased with the songs, pleased with the performances. But when they mixed it, they couldn't get it to sound right. And so they called, or Landau called Chuck Plotkin, who's a kind of Hollywood pro, who never, never wasn't a mixing engineer, who just sent him the tapes and thing. And Plotkin was able, with a fresh pair of ears, to say, this is how it, it ought to sound, you know. So why was he chosen? I don't know. It must have been somebody that land down you, or you're, because also the other interesting thing. Sorry, I'm droning on about this. Hard for the musician whose stuff yeah. is taken off not to take it personally as well. But <laughs> all that rhythm guitar. He said, yeah. "We in those days, you know, because they'd had the falling out with Michael Pell, the, you know, the former manager, and they'd been in court and all that kind of carry on. So this was very much their second start, you know, and it was millions of dollars in the hole. You know, everybody had forgotten about him after Born to, Born to Run. Got to start again." And there was nobody in that studio. So the E Street Band, Landau and Iovine, there was nobody in that studio who had any more experience than anybody else in that studio. And actually, they were inexperienced. They, yeah. You know, they'd, they'd sort of made Born to Run, really. But, you know, and so... And Springsteen says in the film, when he's being interviewed nowadays, talking about it, that... Um, they were, he was loath to let anybody in who might be more experienced because they might take it away from him. You know, what they ought to have had is earlier in the process, somebody really experienced saying, I should lose that. I mean, take away his control. Take away a bit of control. That's right. Somebody come in and say, I should try it a bit more like this. He was in total charge. Of course. Complete control. Everybody was doing absolutely what he wanted. And it was only after they got the next That's the mindset of any band leader, though. I suppose they're used to being in charge of every single aspect of yeah, it. Yeah. And, in, uh, and uh, you know, the, 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 and their publicity to some extent. Anyway, I, thought, I thought it was interesting that those two films are so different. Obviously, that Springsteen film is made for... Here's a huge success story. It's made for the people who like him, who are going to go back and re-examine one tiny little narrow strip of that story in immense detail and kind of get some insights into the working process. And the Rush film is, is part of, I suppose, what seems to be a new... Uh, new vogue, really, for, for rock documentaries, which is it, it, very early on you get a, a sequence of people saying, this was the group I was obsessed with. Yes. And they are members of Foo Fighters, they are the, Tenacious yeah. D, in fact, Jack Black, yeah, yeah. who's very funny, says something like, the great thing about this group is that it had uh, an unlimited supply of something like rocket sauce. Yeah, rocket sauce. Rocket yeah. sauce, and he said, you know, and they kept going for 20 years and there's still plenty of sauce to go around <laughs> yeah. or something. You know. But you've got Tenacious D, you've got the Foo Fighters, you've got Metallica. The guy from uh, Rage Against the you've Machine. You've got Rage Against the Machine, and these guys, it's really Trent Reznor. Trent Reznor. And they're saying, one of them says that he used to go to sleep at night with a pair of headphones, heads, as he calls them, clamped onto his ears with, with Rush playing, and he'd wake up in the morning and Rush was still playing. So therefore, they, Rush had played all through his dreams and his sleep, you know. Because you're kind of so used to that talking head formula with rock documentaries. What made this interesting was you got the feeling it was the first time these people have ever been asked to talk about Rush because it's so uncool, you know. Yeah, and all of them well, leapt at the opportunity. So liberated, you know? and yeah. so it's suddenly it's okay to talk about this. And we can, yeah. And they get carried away and say they were marginalised. Well, that's what they probably were actually to some extent. I don't know. I'm not here. I wouldn't be the one to comment. But yeah, there's the Beatles, there's the Stones, and, and there's Rush. Yeah, well, they're, they're, know, they're, why on Rush up there <laughs> on the great? They were gilded Hall of Fame. Probably would just be Hall of Fame. Would be gilded. They um, they played. They, um, they appeared on the Colbert Show last year in the US, which is probably the coolest TV. Show there is outside of the Today Show, and it was the first time they'd done American TV in over 30 years. Yeah. And this is a band that sells out arenas 
Well, that's to do with the year. snobbish nature of the Absolutely, media. Absolutely, The media yeah. is full of a whole lot of left-wing, democratic, you know, university-educated uh, tosspots who just don't <laughs> think that Rush is <laughs> as good as Bruce yeah. Springsteen, you know. Also, the camera, let's be fair, television is not the, the friend of Rush. No, it's not, no. Yeah. Well, Kenny no. Lee. No, no, not a lot of raw sexuality and no. charisma coming off. Well, the, yeah, but that, well, they that? weren't that kind of band. Uh, Gene Simmons had interviewed it. They go on tour with Kiss. And after every single show, I'm misbehaving and bringing ladies back to the hotel. And Rush are in their rooms reading books. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's right. What's his name? Alex Lifeson, the guitar player. Yeah. He's a really, really intellectual, isn't he? Doesn't he? There's Pokemon another, while well, we talk about rock documentaries, actually, there's one I, rem- I mentioned in my column in the, in the, in the new issue, oh, the uh, which is the, <laughs> the Graham Parker documentary, which uh, I, was am- I-, I was amazed I discovered this because um, the-, the producer or the director was uh, getting the money to make this film, which is called Don't Ask Me Questions, by just raising money on the web via one of these you know, social networks yeah. of some kind that allows you to contribute. And so you can go out and canvas Graham Parker and say, you know, I'm a, I'm a young guy, I'm a film student or a film graduate or whatever, and I love Graham Parker and I've got a camera and Graham's quite happy to do this. So, you know, let's make a little film about Graham Parker and his legacy. But I, I've got no budget to do this. I need $50,000 or whatever, whatever you need to clear the music, which I would imagine is probably the main expense of these things. How about putting your hand in your pocket? And so various people, you know, $100 here, $50 yeah. there, and they get their name as kind of associate producer yeah. uh, somehow. You get your name in the credits. Basically. But it strikes me, you know, no disrespect to Graham Parker, but nowadays there's nobody whose fan base is so small that they can't have a film made about them. Somehow, you know. Because yeah. And I suppose that's the flattening world and the internet, isn't it? You know, that you can find the one Graham Parker fan in there's Singapore a, a great or pair the three of, in Brazil or whatever. There's a really good pair of documentaries, one called uh, Driver 8 and the other called The Atlas Moth, which is about, and they're both about the same band, a kind of prog metal band called Dark Horse from somewhere in Minnesota. And I, this is a band that no one's ever heard of and they've had two films made about them. But I suppose a film then becomes a way to interest people, yeah. doesn't it? Because I suppose it's like the X Factor, in a way. Bear with me. <laughs> <laughs> You're out the limb, you know. No, I'm not, because what makes the X Factor work is not the music, it's the narrative. Yes, it is. No it's point story, turning yeah. up on X Factor it's the drama. Saying, I'm really talented. Yeah. No, you've got to turn up and say, and my mother left me when I was four, yeah. and, you know, I've got to... Is there, a, got is there a narrative curve, a dramatic arc to the Rush story? Because I haven't only seen bits of it. I mean, I didn't know if it was that sensational story. I can remember seeing them. No, but you're talking about the, you're talking about the, the really unknown ones, aren't you? Oh, oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's Rush. interesting because the guy who, um, who's the front man is, uh, has issues... Mental issues. Oh, he's perfect. And so he's a perfect candidate <laughs> for, for filming. Yeah. Yes. They do like that kind yeah. of thing, don't they? Yeah. On the interweb. I saw Rush supported by uh, Van Halen. Very nice. In the Rainbow Theatre in uh, Islington in 19... Finsbury Park? Where's the Rainbow? Yeah, in 1979. Yes. I reviewed nice. it for New Musical Express. And I said I thought Rush were a, a pile of tremendous piffle <laughs> and not good as Bruce Springsteen, probably, or whatever. And I got a lot of... I can only describe as hate mail. Yeah. Like, yeah. You would have done, yeah. They, well, they made a bit of a Frozen Lewis, 14 you know, years old, and Rob but, Fitzpatrick. Yeah, Rob Fitzpatrick. The funny yeah, thing was, was last very night... hard using green biro, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the, 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 lights, uh, the credits rolled, the lights came up, and I turned to my left, and I'm sitting next to Rob Fitzpatrick. I had no idea. Oh, he, well, he was, oh, he was there. He was there. Oh, oh, next who is this guy, like me, jumping on the armrest, punching the air... So <laughs> things we miss since the internet, the the you know the hate mail letter written in green pen. Yeah, I miss that enormously. Yeah. <laughs> yes, those are happy days. Got quite a collection of them. The word. 
a magazine, a website, a podcast, a way of life. Something else someone said to me at the, at the show the other night was, which really, really, really struck me, actually, which is uh, they listened, more than one person had listened to every single one of these podcasts. How many have there been, Fraser? 155? 100? I think, officially, but then there's another score beyond that, I think. Have we got unreleased material? Yeah, no, yes, so. we'd have to do a box set. We'd have to do a box set with a hidden track. <laughs> another Elton John and Naked Parachute story. Yeah, but they'd gone back and they'd listened to them, kind of chronologically, worked their way back through all that. I was so touched. And there was one couple who'd come down from Bristol, driven to the concert in Islington. On the way, they had lined up and listened to, not for the first time, the, the Neil Hannon podcast. Podcast. They'd seen Neil Hannon, all the other groups, and on the way back, they had two other podcasts prepared for their journey home, sweep them back to Bristol. And I was just, I was just terribly touched, actually, by how, um, you know, how, how, how enthusiastic people were, how they'd gone back and just found little tiny nuggets of interest in these things that we'd done a year ago. And uh, It's very gratifying. Extremely gratifying. When you gratifying. consider how much preparation we put into this podcast, <laughs> it's... It's good to know that it's recognised, isn't it? And also, we put a bit in. it yeah. says a lot about the improved audio quality of these things, that people can actually hear them above a car engine. That's true, yeah. Which many years ago, I don't think you could do that. Well, the very first one was recorded, I think, in, was it in this room. You, no, the yeah, first one was done in, in my your house. upstairs room. In my your house with a tiny little okay. microphone on, on, on a Macintosh. That was all right. <laughs> Damn, put it down. That was all right. It was when we were in the big echoey room over, over uh, Pentaville Road. Yes. Those, those were uh, that's where the sound really suffered. But now we're in uh, the wardrobe, as we call our well, we, studio. What we might do is get them all remixed and remastered yes. later on and put it as a box. Set. Get them cleaned up by oh, Chuck like. Blockkin. Blockkin can come <laughs> in, charge us a massive wedge. Yeah. Make yeah. it sound funny and interesting. Yeah. Um, cost. So, new issue word out this week. Uh, if you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, the place to pursue it further with like-minded souls at wordmagazine.co.uk. Uh, we finished with this podcast with a, with a special feature, actually, um, uh, from our, our good friend Matt Priest, uh, a Matt of Dodgy, as he seems yes. destined to be known. I think out of Dodgy is his surname. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's, right. <laughs> that, that's that's what everybody calls him. Uh, and, and Matt has recently been working in the world of radio production. Uh, I don't think you'll mind us saying he's uh, he's been a studied radio production. He's now fully qualified. Uh, and he's, he's doing a, an occasional series of stuff for us, which I suppose we call I'm With The Band, where Matt deals with issues that affect musicians and issues that come from the musician's world and looked at from the musician's uh, perspective. And some of those are no doubt be bawdy and hilariously funny. This one's not bawdy. All funny. All funny, but it is true. And it concerns uh, John Brooks, who's the drummer of the Charlatans. Charlatans are also Again, covered in, the, in this new issue. In the new, in the new piece, issue. Yeah. Uh, Charlatans, um, well known as a hard partying band, uh, but not long ago, during a gig in the United States, that hard partying lifestyle probably could be said to have caught up with John Brooks. And uh, so Matt spoke to him about it. John Brooks when the Charlatans and Dodgy played festivals together back in the early 90s. We've always got on via a mixture of mutual respect and regional solidarity. 
So when I heard that John had collapsed on stage in America with a brain tumour, I was totally stunned. He's written a brilliant blog all about it, which you can read on thecharlatans.net, which is an amazing feat, um, considering he's a drummer, but also considering he's recovering from a life-threatening operation. Uh, I spoke to him earlier this week and asked him what happened. I'll give you the version that I can remember. I mean, basically, we, we were in the States touring on the bus. We did the sound check. The day was normal for me. Played a few songs, got some food, had a sleep, got up, felt fine, had a coffee, got on the stage, started playing, and then, like, third song in, I, I kind of noticed these, just these really weird lights in the corner of my eyes that were just, you know, look, they looked like stage lights were being shot, shot into my eyes, and I was getting this kind of weird reflection. And uh, it just, from then on, it really quickly became visual then it became hearing became really weird and I, I, I got Martin to turn the bass down because it was really loud and we're using the same guy who does uh, Oasis's guitars and, the, and the Oasis are historically the loudest band on planet earth at the moment or they're trying to be so he, I think he was used to having everything at like number 10 and I said mate you got to turn that down because my fillings are coming out right so I, t- I got him to turn it down and then uh, it, it didn't go down it got louder and I just then I just thought this is not right and I felt like I felt like I was in the 60s and in Haight-Asbury and someone had put something in my drink. That's what I felt like, because it was just getting really weird. And then all of a sudden, I just kind of blacked out. And, and I was coming, I was in and out of consciousness and shouting and bawling, and it was pretty terrible from what I, what I was told. And then I got t- taken across town in an ambulance, and and it was obviously it was it was something to do with my neurological system. And uh, luckily, we were in we were in Philadelphia, and there's a really good uni- university hospital there, which they got me to. And the uh, doctor said, we'll put him in a machine and scan his head. And, uh, and I can't remember bits of this. And then that, that was it. I found this, this tumour, which is uh, well, which was on the back of my head. It's gone now. They've taken it away. And and that was kind of it, really. And then I, I just kind of, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm here and I'm, I'm going through some amazing kind of treatment. And you know what? It's, 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 it's made me feel, it's changed me completely, really. I mean... To be alive after being nearly dead is, is one thing, but to be alive and then realise how much people love you and how, and how, and how your friends care about you and your family, uh, how much they mean to you, is like, I don't know, maybe this is something that was due to happen to me and to give me some kind of new, new like you say, philosophical outlook on life, I'm, and I'm up for that, you know. You know, I, I've got I've got the biggest I've got the biggest job to do in my life now. I've got to kind of keep myself healthy and stay alive. But I think I think a lot of that's down to uh, determination and and presence of mind. I mean, if you can keep a band going for twenty years, then I think I'll keep I'll keep myself alive for another twenty years. You know. Did you have any inkling at all? I mean, looking back now, when in the time leading up to the the incident, where you thought. Oh God! Yeah, of course. A couple of days before, I had a twinge, or I had a blackout, or whatever. Is there any kind of inkling at all this was going to happen? No, yeah, I, 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 no, there's not really. I don't. Uh, there's nothing I can remember. I mean, I, I used to suffer from the headache on a you know Saturday morning after Friday night, like everybody else. But you know, and I think I, again, I think I'm really lucky because this tumor which has been removed was sitting there. Could have been growing for a long while. Could have been growing for six weeks. Could have been six months a year. No one knows. But the thing about it is, it decided that night that it was going to make itself known, and uh, it was, you know, it was like the scene from Alien. Really, he decided it was going to make an appearance, and uh, luckily, he got the he, got, he picked the wrong guy. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Uh, I know it's daft, but what would have got me is, is the feeling of like, oh no, I can't let the band down. I can't, I can't play the bad gig, you know. Yeah, well, without a doubt, that, and that's 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 been my uh, and, I, and yours too. I, I, I know you well, you know. And it's like once once we're on there doing our thing, that's it, that's it, you know. You, you have to drag me off. I, I ain't getting off until I've done my gig, you know. 
it's it's a, it's a principle. It's, it's the way I, it's, it's the way I operate, and I've, I've always I've always maintained that that level of commitment. And you know, I was you know I was upset because I'd, I'd kind of I'd screwed up really, and I don't do that normally. You know, I'm only human. I'm not saying I'm completely infallible, but you know, I, I didn't. I didn't want it to, you know. I didn't want it to start going wrong. But when it's when it's a, when it when it's when it's your kind of your your brain, it's a big, powerful organ, and it it, pull, it calls the shots, mate. You ain't got a chance when it starts playing them. I mean, the charlatans, uh, you know, as you said, you've been together twenty years, and you've always had a reputation that uh, you like to have a good time. You know, live hard or whatever, party hard. Have you been instructed by the doctors, or have you changed that? Have you got to change that? Change your ways? Yeah, I've got to be uh, mindful of the fact that the body is uh, is is a fabulous machine, and it will respond to uh, to whatever you ask it to do. But there's only so long you can keep going down the, the, the path of not going to bed till half past three in the morning, drinking a bottle of wine, you know, uh, in between large glasses of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, and I think uh, we live in a culture in this in our country in the UK where you know. Boozing and, and socialising are hand in hand, and it necessarily hasn't got to be that way because I think down the road, I don't want to preach. No, it's not my bag, but a lot of people are going to might run into problems with with that lifestyle. And I think speaking to the doctors and that you know this could all account to could you know could could have been something to do with it. Maybe I was running, let myself run myself down too much, but wasn't aware of it. Or so my, my you know my you know philosophy there will be. To look after to look after my body and to make sure that you know that I'm there. I've got children. I've got three young children. I'm married and I've got a fantastic life. And I, I don't really want to uh, leave anybody on their own. You know, it's interesting because you know we both joined bands young. You know, you know either teenagers or early twenties, and then you kind of exist in this bubble. And in a way, part of you is still that young kid. Do you think it takes something like this to make you realise? Oh, hang on. I'm I'm 40 here. I mean, I don't know how old you are, John. I guess you're around about that same kind of age as me. I'm actually getting towards middle age here. You'd never admit it, you know, and I don't like to admit it to myself, but you think it's something like this to suddenly go, the bubble's popped and like, hang on, I'm just a normal bloke. You know? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I definitely relate to the bubble, especially, you know, you, you from, from a touring musician's point of view, like, like we are, you know, you, you, you pack your bag, you get on the bus, you throw your bag underneath the bus, and that's it. You're on the bubble. You're on tour, and really, the, the, the world stops. From then on, you just get you just get on with this kind of crazy, crazy life, enjoying yourself, and and uh, yeah, the, the bubble is definitely in, in effect. The bubble's burst for me now in that respect. Not in, not in a sad way. It's just it's you know it's it's punctured, uh, and uh, I, I, yeah, I, I am 42, and I've I have come to terms with the fact that uh, yeah, it, it's it's midlife, but. I think with with a bit of planning, proper proper care and attention to what you're doing, you can still you can still have as much fun as anybody else. Really, it's just uh, everybody gets that little kind of at some point in their life, everybody will get a little poke from somewhere, and some somebody or something will say, "Hang on a bit now, you're reaching the point where you have to kind of rethink things a little." Unfortunately for me, my mum was a little bit of a severe poke, a push, a prod, and a kick down the stairs. It felt like. But you know, everybody has to listen to, to the signs and, 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 and look out for the, for the signals. And uh, and I just think for musicians who are, who are listening to this or watching this or whatever, you know, be a musician first and foremost, and be true to yourself. Enjoy yourself. Don't don't worry about trying to fit into any normal uh, social, you know, stereotype because you're not. You're a musician. You're special. But remember that you're also a human being and you have, you have got your limitations. Are you a religious man, John? Uh, you know what? I, I I had a spiritual awakening when I was in uh, Philadelphia. I I, uh, I was given uh, the advice by the doctor to let him know in the morning whether he wanted to remove the tumour. And 
he told me if he did remove the tumour, I couldn't fly. I couldn't go home for eight weeks. I couldn't get on an aeroplane with it with a hole in my head. But I had children and a wife who wanted to see me, and I didn't know if they could get over. Uh, so I was really, really, really in a, in a not a dark place. I was, at, I was at a point where I didn't know what to do. And then I had, then I had a, uh, another doctor come in and tell me that I had to go into dialysis because my kidneys were starting to uh, fail because of the p- poisons in my blood from the, 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 the fits from the night before. So that night... I, uh, yeah, I got on my knees and I did. I said my prayers and I asked for help, guidance from whoever was on shift that night. <laughs> and 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 in the morning, uh, I, I had a phone call from uh, the UK and someone had, uh, had agreed to, to operate on me in the UK and told me to fly home. So yeah, I, I, my prayers were answered. So religion uh, is not something I practice in 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 its. In, in this organised religious kind of way, but I do believe that there is help out there when you need it. Now, have you noticed any difference at all in in, in your thought patterns or in your speech or anything like that since you've had the tumour removed? No, you know what? Funnily enough, actually, my memory's improved, which is really good news. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that would be a good idea for me, actually. I, there's certain things I don't want to remember, you know what I mean, John? <laughs> well, it, well it, actually, having said that, it's not it's not my long-term memory. I've kind of, I've seen, I don't know what... It, I think it's because I've changed my diet, cut out alcohol... Uh, getting some sleep and uh, generally eating a lot better. I mean, I don't, something something has kind of. I think maybe this tumor was kind of creating me brain a little bit. So now it's gone. There's a bit more room. So it's you know it's the whole thing's bizarre. It really is. Now is it a case of making sure that the cancer doesn't come back? So you're going to be having treatment and radio or chemo? Um... Yeah, yeah. I've got I've got uh, chemo and, chemo and radiotherapy every day now until Christmas. Uh, well, until the first of December. Yeah, and then uh, then I'll move on to the next stage, which is kind of, I suppose, I'm, I'm not really, I don't know what the doctors decide to do, then they'll just kind of uh, monitor me then, and then I, I think that, I really believe in my heart that that'll be it for me then, that'll be me finished with uh, with this episode, and I, I can move on, I think that I'm I'm on the healing road, well and truly, and I think that will, I think the next time I'll speak to you will probably be, maybe maybe to wind up this interview with it with some good news and, and, I, and I think I'll, be, I'll have moved on, but I'm planning on getting back on the drum kit with the charlatans for my comeback gig in full on Hogmanay in Edinburgh Edinburgh Castle oh mate listen I really really appreciate you taking your time out and speaking to us ok mate lovely to speak to you thanks for the time mate you, you be good mate and, and stay in touch yeah alright John take care bye bye This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Details at wordmagazine.co.uk. Mom 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.